gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Two Daves and a Doc. We are joined this week, oh, and guests, of course, when, how can we forget? We tend to do this guest thing a lot these days. So this week we are joined by Nadina Galli, PhD, and uh, I, we, we talked ahead of time. We are not going to try to pronounce her name in Dutch because as we know from previous episodes, I am not good with geography. I'm not good with names. And this is, this is where we start. So <laughs> Nadina, welcome to, to our podcast or videocast or whatever. And to start with, let's get a little bit of background on who you are, where you're from, and, and what you did your PhD on. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so my background uh, starts uh, really growing up in the suburbs of Canada. I'm Dutch originally, but grew up in Canadian suburbs. And I think that uh, growing up in that kind of um, environment, which was great in of itself, but of course, um, seeing all of this urban development kind of eat up this nature uh, and as my neighborhood seemed to just grow and grow endlessly and seemed to encroach on all this this nature surrounding it um, I from a young age was always kind of left with questions of you know what is the role of humans versus nature and how is it that uh, humans seem to get to be this invasive species and, and take over nature at, at their own uh, free will um, not, of course, that I could have put it into those words at the time, but I think in retrospect, it's always easier to think, oh, hey, maybe that's where, where that all started. And um, I started, uh, did my bachelor's in, in environmental um, uh, biology and ecology and evolutionary biology. And, and that kind of, uh, I, I chose to do those things because I felt like I knew so little. And if I wanted to do anything about these kind of issues that I was seeing, the first step was to better understand the earth and how it functioned. And that's what led me to do my master's in earth sciences as well at the University of Amsterdam. So moved back to the Netherlands, both because I felt like there was a lot to learn in terms of sustainability and urban development in the Netherlands, but also because I was just curious about my Dutch heritage. So moved back to Amsterdam. And then after working at a um, sustainability consultancy firm called Metabolic for a number of years, I decided to go back into academia because one of the things that I saw while uh, working as an industrial ecologist I saw that there, um, you know, after reading so many different municipal agendas and visions, both for green and sustainable cities and for the smart city, I felt like both of these visions and agendas, they wanted the same things, yet the way that they went about getting there could not be more different. And I felt like there was actually a lot of ways that they could strengthen each other. But really what was happening in practice was that these two were just running beside each other in parallels and silos and there was very little overlap. And that's kind of what inspired the idea to do a PhD. And then I came into contact with, um, well, who ended up being my PhD supervisor, um, Dr. Francesco Pila at UCD. And uh, we found out there was room within a, an existing uh, Horizon 2020 project called Connecting Nature. So um, my second supervisor became uh, Dr. Marcus Coulier at um, a Trinity College Dublin. Uh, he was also the P, or he is the PI of Connecting Nature. So that's kind of, we had this joint setup between Trinity and UCD within their Connecting Nature project, which allowed me, um, they got a great privilege of, uh, they gave me so much freedom to really kind of explore all these different things. And because of that freedom and that uh, academic freedom um, led to the conceptualization of this idea, this concept, this framework called the Internet of Nature. And the Internet of Nature really works to find and pilot different ways to use emerging technologies to better monitor and improve and enhance urban nature. Um, so that's what I focused on kind of the theoretical component of my PhD. And then the more empirical part of my PhD actually looked at 
attempting and experimenting with some of those possible applications. So specifically, I looked at high resolution satellite imagery and uh, soil sensors to look at you know, ways that we might be able to monitor the health of urban soil um, and specifically urban forest soil uh, much more efficiently so that we might actually be able to optimize management that's happening in the field um, so that we can kind of move from this very uh, reactive approach that we have to urban nature management right now to a much more proactive one. Sounds great. I think there's a joke in there I saw yesterday about spinach and connecting to the internet. They impregnated carbon nanotubes into spinach that now can send signals saying about all these different, you know, detect, detecting different toxins in soil. So when you said internet of nature, I'm like, oh, we now have spinach that can communicate with giving, you. Giving plants <laughs> a voice. That's yeah. what we do. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's an amazing and slightly unorthodox approach to it, which, mm. you know. But it makes sense. And it around. continues, it continues the conversation we had with an awful lot of commonality. I know Francesco quite well and some projects I know what he's like, so I'm not surprised in the slightest that you and him would get on extremely well with this idea of I think he wants to put IoT in everything. And you know, it, it, it there's a huge potential in it. So you know what I mean? Connecting yeah. connecting nature with technology as well is I would imagine somewhat controversial among an awful lot of people. Have you found any backlash or reluctance to integrate tech and IoT into natural processes? Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, I think that's only a good thing, right? I mean, um, backlash in a way means that, well, at least people are paying attention and at least people care enough to even comment on things. So uh, any kind of backlash or critique that I get, I'm only, um, I'm only really stoked about because it means that people are watching and, and reading uh, my work and our work. So um, I think one of the biggest kind of critiques that you get is this idea that emerges from this other concept called technological nature and this idea that we can actually replace nature with some kind of technological replacement like, um, you know, instead of going to, for a walk in the forest, you might take a VR walk in the forest mm -hmm. or instead of, um, you know, having having a window which might look out to uh, a natural area. You know, you might have your TV screen set on some kind of, you know, a movable uh, nature kind of landscape. Um, and all of those things, of course, are not what the Internet of Nature is about. The Internet of Nature is really about two core principles um, and applications. And one is really about uh, enhancing green benefits. So making sure that you can use technology to better exploit, let's say, these ecosystem services that we've come to rely on from urban nature. So, for example, you might be able to use... Um, you know, high-res satellite imagery to do uh, better um, and more up-to-date quantification of ecosystem services, or you might be able to use a soil sensor to um, better, you know, estimate um, or better tell you where, when and where you need to water uh, certain areas. And then the other kind of um, theme within all of this is, you know, improving stakeholder engagement in all of this. So can we actually use the Internet of Nature to better reconnect people to the nature around them, especially in cities where, you know, that relationship is quite taut. So, um, you know, using things like, um, you know, citizen science initiatives or perhaps using a plant identification app or there's something even uh, developed in Denmark called uh, Into Green, which is kind of this Pokemon Go style app and kids can use it for urban nature safaris. Um, all of those different things are kind of, you know, not only going to help us um, better monitor urban nature, but also allow citizens to, to, you know, to get more use out of it. An interesting concept. Actually, one of the things that I'm researching for my stuff is data as social agency, right? So we're looking at 
all this stuff that we create and, and, you know, from the lens that you're taking as well, you look at nature and all the data that it generates and all the data it can provide us. Right. So to Colin's point about the IOT embedding, I work on, worked with, I work in emerging technologies within my company. Right. So things that I look after from a messaging to market type standpoint, and along, along with some incredibly brilliant people is how we do this concept of, well, safe cities, digital cities, kind of integrated holes and in cities like that. Right. We have this mass profusion of data that just goes through everything, all these connected sensors, these ideas, right? The goal is to keep people safe, but we kind of do that at the, you know, exclusion of the things that actually benefit us to be, to be fair, like the nature that is present there. We know that it's a carbon dioxide receptor, right? There's things that it absorbs from our environment that you know, helps increase our health and also all these things. So that it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I love this love this idea. <laughs> it's incredible because it's, again, another kind of data point. We walk through this every single day and all this kind of data that surrounds us, right? And stuff that we could be doing with it in order to increase the actual benefit to society and, yeah. and, and to nature itself. Yeah. No, and, and, and from a very practical standpoint, which is kind of a um, very much a common thread throughout all of my work, I've, you know, despite, you know, being in the ivory tower of academia, I've always very much wanted to have, you know, one foot in practice and make sure that whatever you're developing and, and spending, you know, all those hard earned taxpayer dollars on your research, making sure that it is actually relevant to society as a whole. And, um, one of the things that's kind of very much talked about in the aboricultural world, so in terms of tree care in the, in the city environment is, you know, there's more than ever, there is so much media attention on uh, the importance of green in cities, especially now in this, you know, COVID era, um, you know, where travel's restricted and people are in lockdown in their houses, you know, uh, you know, people that, you know, maybe have been to Machu Picchu or Patagonia or these beautiful places in the world weren't even aware of their own park just around the corner. And now that has become increasingly apparent uh, as they are trapped in their homes, for, back, for lack of a better word. And um, at the same time, the aboricultural world um, has always said one of the things that we struggle with the most is that we simply do not have enough data. I mean, there's cities in the world, several of them that still don't even have a baseline tree inventory, which is just a database of all the trees that are under their management. Even that kind of really basic amount of data is missing. And that's, of course, that's completely unacceptable because trees and other kind of urban nature should be considered as assets in cities. And we definitely, you know, wouldn't have a city that doesn't have up-to-date information on gas and cables and pipelines and uh, buildings and bridges and roads and all this other kind of infrastructure. So why not trees? And I think the internet of nature is a way to kind of help us get there. Definitely. Definitely. We need to know what's there. You have to count before you can do anything. Like it's exactly can't, uh, yeah. Can't measure what we, you don't know. Can't manage what you don't measure. Exactly. And in particular with the problem we face is we need more. We all know we need more, but we've no quantitative measure or metric of what more is. So more is a benefit. Now, based on your kind of research as well, it seemed very, I don't want to say free form, but very multidisciplinary and kind of you guided your own path through that research with support from Francesco and your other advisor at the same time. How did you find that process from an academic perspective of, you know, embarking on what was an ambitious project that is in, you know, a new area of a new field? How did you kind of tread that line? And did you have any issues with the process of undertaking the doctorate? in a field that maybe doesn't have a huge amount of historical precedence or guidance? 
I mean, I loved it, but I, I think that's because of, of who I am and how I prefer to work. I've always been someone who I, I love to work in a team, but as long as I have, you know, my, my own autonomy within that team. And that's something that, that Francesco and, and Marcus and the, the, the whole labs at both Trinity and UCD were able to offer me. And that was even the case when um, I got the opportunity to go to MIT Sensible City Lab with a Fulbright, um, the same kind of um, autonomy, I think that's the best word for it, was, was awarded to me. And I think that's the most important thing when you're, when you're working at really kind of the cutting edge of a lot of these concepts, you need to have a lot of room uh, to fail as well. I mean, that's what innovation is all about, right? And not be not be scared or not be too, um, I guess, cut up in certain res restrictions within that environment. And I think in that sense, it was kind of a, a true innovative environment that I was placed in. And, and I definitely feel like that's that's the environment I perform best under. Good, good. And uh, like what we talked about previously as well, before we started was this idea of personal promotion or you know promotion of yourself as a researcher and not necessarily the field in it it's something mm. I've done over the years it's something you clearly have done successfully over the years as well what what was your motivation or what was your reasoning to start that process you know beyond the traditional academic approach yeah I think it started with just um, a want and a desire to share what I was working on because I felt like other people might be able to learn from it or perhaps um, you know be be able to be inspired by it perhaps I think that's where it started for me and then as you know I kind of got a hold of okay well what do these different platforms mean and you know now I kind of only use Twitter and LinkedIn for these purposes and my own website and blog um, it, I really kind of discovered that it can do so much more than that because once you start sharing your work um, and what you're working on you do more than just inspire people apparently you also um, you can also help people take action and whether they do that themselves or whether they reach out to you for um, you know all kinds of uh, you know science communication opportunities like this podcast for example and all of that kind of adds and builds to this momentum of um, I guess this brand that you're setting up for yourself and I think um, you know these days I've seen postdoc you know applications and job postings you know they don't just want your number of publications but they want to see how many Twitter followers you have they want to see how much engagement you have on things like LinkedIn, and you know I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, um, but it but it is a thing, so we we might as well you know see what we can do with that system. True, so exactly, and the, the measure the measure of impact factor is changing. You know, it used it to be a hate yeah. text and now it could be a connectedness score. You know, is science in particular and funding, I found funding in particular, government funding is very, very important. The mm -hmm. general population might not read an academic paper, but they might watch a TED talk. They might watch mm -hmm. something of that sort. So it, it, it is not only propagating through these non-standard means in your own relevant research bubble, but also outwards to the general public. And then you don't know what's going to pull in. You know, opportunities, speaking engagements, new partnerships, new jobs, new funders. I think, yeah, this sort of stuff is new. The approach is new and it brings new people in. Yeah. And I mean, as someone that academically works a lot on these ideas of, you know, that technology can be this huge um, democratization force, it's kind of the same thing on a personal level, too. You know, being able to apply these different tools also kind of 
means that you are more in control of your future. You know, it's not just, you know, now my only options are not just being able to get funding and having, you know, working towards perhaps a 10-year position at a university, which, you know, let's be honest, those are exceedingly rare. So it also provides you as a researcher, as a, you know, to not just become a, you know, researcher at a university, but actually a thought leader that can stand on your own two feet and be able to, um, you know, hopefully in the future, kind of monetize different streams of that as well so that you're not purely reliant on, um, on, on, on funding all the time because that takes up an incredible amount of time and oftentimes takes away from doing the actual research. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, you know, the funding thing is kind of prescient, right? You know, right now there's the Marie Curie, um, you know, uh, I don't know what it is. It's not an IMI, but it's, uh, you know, that, fun that funding opportunity for a lot mm. of postdocs out there right now. I think the decision date is February 9th, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of people are, <laughs> I notice kind of, kind of intimately now based on, uh, based yeah. on my partner, but you know, like people are in pursuit of this, you know, what changes that rank scale? Like a lot of these, a lot of these processes, I guess, you know, to your point, a lot of these processes are actually hidden behind the scenes. You don't know how some of these criteria and decisions are made, right? You're yeah. given a token, Hey, you know, you have to do this. And we see this in, you know, coming from the business world back into academia myself, you know, I'm used to your profile, your public profile is what a lot of times determines your acceptability to a job, yeah. especially here in America, right? Yeah. You know, oh, you put this on Facebook, you did this on LinkedIn, you know, <laughs> you know, you're trouble. And we see this, we see this in politics, we see this kind of just kind of general nature of things. And I think academia, at least in the subtle shift, you know, I've spent 14 years between getting my master's and now getting into PhD. So I've seen that subtle shift in, you know, academia used to be I like the illustration of an ivory tower, but it used to be this, yeah. you know, you know, thing that's held far off. And there was that very, very large divide between what happens here and now in society, the rapid change that we see, and what academia is willing to accept as normative or, you know, kind of yeah. social behavior, right? So yeah. bringing that kind of in there and adding that to you almost as a secondary, a social CV, if you will, and saying, I did this, I have this, I have this kind of impact is it's, it's fascinating to me to kind of look at it from a, a social, social perspective as well. Yeah, and I, I think it speaks to kind of a larger trend that that universities are going to have to be forced to accept is that, you know, if they don't innovate in the terms that, you know, in the way that they approach education and, and deliver that education, you know, they might actually become um, obsolete is much too of a strong word, but uh, if they don't kind of, I mean, we, we, we live in this world where we have this, you know, you can follow Coursera and Udemy and, and YouTube, there's so much information out there that, um, of course, you know, your degree, no one can take that away from you. And of course, there's still a lot of, um, of reasons and important reasons to, to get a degree and, 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 um, and pursue higher education. But there's definitely something to be said that, you know, with this democratization of information and education, um, that the role of universities are going to be changing in that, too. I always point to SpaceX as being one of the, I love rockets. I, I, you know, I watched serial number nine, the rocket launch yesterday and the failure you talked earlier before failure is always part of the innovation process, you know, and I think, you know, actually holding them as kind of a current contemporaneous example of here's science and engineering and praxis, right? You know, it's not just yeah. the head, head stuff. It's the actual outer workings of this and the actual fascination of people that never before considered this idea, right? It's, it's pre-COVID even. Like I was watching, you know, we're landing a rocket on a freaking barge in the middle of the ocean, which, you know, it took 
massive amounts of engineering just to get the shuttle to go the right way back in the yeah. 80s. Yes, I'm old. I know I'm old. But like all these, these things, but that democratization of access to information, we can watch these things being built. Uh, I had yeah. somebody say, why is Elon Musk's, you know, building a factory in Berlin and in Austin, Texas, so interesting to people? Well, now I can fly a drone. I can see people flying drones over these buildings, watch it get assembled. And now I have sudden interest in why are they yeah. doing things this way? And, yeah. you know, even when it comes to your research and the application, you, you were saying this, and I noticed another article the other day about these little micro parks that are inside cities, right? New York has a lot of these pocket parks or whatever you want mm. to call it. People are starting to take notice of the fact that, wait, this is here. You know, and it's that kind of awakening idea. It's democratizing the world even to a level of, hey, I suddenly am aware now yeah. of all these little bits and pieces of things that are that are around us. And it's fascinating to just kind of see all this information and how it just kind of perfuses through our lives and what we can do with it, truly, like you were saying. Well, and I, I think that's where universities will have an increasingly important role is, is disseminating that knowledge that comes out of it. And you already have um, a couple of great initiatives like at Trinity of the Social Innovation Center that does a lot to, you know, really kind of disseminate all of the research that's happening and um, what that means for, you know, not only, you know, social science, but also um, social entrepreneurship, you know, so you immediately kind of have that link between practice and academia. And even the way that the MIT Sensible City Lab is set up with this consortium model in terms of funding, you know, they've always got one foot grounded, you know, deeply in industry and one foot grounded deeply in academia. And I think those kinds of interesting public private partnerships, I think that will continue to, to kind of re, really be important, both from a science communication perspective and for making sure that the research that's being done always, you know, uh, you know, always stays relevant. Yeah, and I think a big point you mentioned was that idea of public-private partnership traditionally occurred between institutions and organizations, whereas now, based on what we talked about, the idea of promoting yourself as a researcher in a field, they can now happen between individuals and then individuals and in organizations and individuals and in institutions. So I know you were awarded a Forbes under 30 under 30 last year. Congratulations. I have, uh, as one myself, to the club a bit late due to covid I mean, for I 50 under found, 50, just FYI. Exactly. <laughs> soon, soon, soon. But even in that case, the dynamics of a network like that, I have found maps that journey very, very closely. So I think with COVID, you've yet to experience the in-person events, unfortunately, hopefully soon. But they, these kind of happen. You know, you meet people that like yourself and uh, that are doing great work. You have a conversation. You find out your work aligns. You have a new idea and you just go and do it. There's no infrastructure. There's no architecture. I think that idea is not fully embraced yet by universities. You know, it's still bounded by structure. When you go mm -hmm. into, for want of a better word, these rarefied networks, everyone in it is just a doer. Everyone has done them before. Everyone has the connections to do them. So you just do them again. So I think that's what I would like to see more in academia is an acceptance of individual capacity and not just maybe because of the degree they have or where it came from or their years of experience. You know, the outsider has created the new world that we live in. So I think we need to yeah. embrace that an awful lot more. So yeah, I don't no. know if you found anything in that space as well. I know you operate in a very similar space. What would your thoughts on something like that be? Well, I think it's, um, you know, the, the Forbes 30 under 30 list, for example, it brings about a certain level of 
authority, let's say, that then, you know, get you invited to those next things, which then further build the profile. So it's kind of all of these different things kind of add together. And indeed, as you were saying, I haven't really been able to, to relish in kind of the benefits of being a Forbes 30 under 30 because of COVID this year, but hopefully that'll come. Um, but I think it kind of, I think when the, the, the thing that was so exciting about for me about the Forbes 30 under 30 thing, because of course it's uh, typically a very, you know, uh, business entrepreneurship heavy driven set of lists. And of course they have these different categories. Um, but I think what got me most excited was just the idea that, you know, as me kind of broadly representing this kind of urban ecology world that that got um, validation, let's say from Forbes 30 under 30, which I think is a field that they wouldn't necessarily um, look to for a lot of innovation. So I think that was kind of validating in and of itself that, you know, wow, even even Forbes wants to talk about tech driven urban ecology, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And that's you broadening out your sense, you know, if you could just imagine a situation if you didn't take ownership of your own profile in that space, they might never have seen or heard of you before. You know, and as you'd mentioned, I found the same experience. These are all leverage points. Getting one helps the next, meets the next one. It's kind of like a domino effect. You do one and the rest of it will come afterwards. Yeah, Yeah, no, exactly. That's definitely been my experience. And it kind of forces you to become a better communicator every time because your audience keeps getting wider and wider. I mean, when, you know, I was just starting out kind of in this, Um, brand development, if we can call it that, it was just purely about sharing academic work that was going on. And as the audience gets wider and wider, and as you kind of these, and these accolades really help to kind of broaden that, that audience, you really have to learn, you know, you start realizing that something that you maybe wrote even six months ago is now not readable by this wider audience. And every time you're forced to curate your words and curate your work so that you might actually be able to better communicate it. And I think that's something that um, I hope universities will take note of that they might actually go further than just, you know, the university communications department and actually work towards training their researchers and their professors and their students to become better communicators themselves. Um, And that can mean many different things. Of course, you know, the internet allows us to do podcasts and blogs and, and videos and all this kinds of different media, but even something just as simple as writing, you know, it's like that famous Mark Twain quote, you know, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one. That kind of curation of information, that's the most difficult thing. But once you master it, it's the most powerful thing in the world. And I think that's what I've enjoyed so much about this brand development as it continues to get bigger and that audience um, uh, continues to get wider. It provides you with with, with the means or at least the motivation to continue curating your message. It sounds good. So if you could give any tips let's say for somebody like dave here who is just embarking on that phd process or anyone else that's listening how can they start how would you recommend they start on doing that on developing and curating this kind of personalized brand yes i think the one place where i would definitely start which is what i started with is any paper that you bring out or any conference presentation that you do force yourself to write a 500 word max blog about it and post it online. And like, even if the, the first couple ones are really crappy, like whatever, it's just a matter of, of doing it, you know, because only by doing it, do you actually you know, hone those skills. 
Um, and you know, maybe we'll, nobody will read those ever, but at least it's a good, it's a good exercise for yourself. Um, and it might actually lead to a lot of interesting opportunities as well. Cause like you were saying, Colin, I mean, the most mass majority of people are not going to read those academic papers and stronger still, they might not even be open access, which again, you know, so much for the democratization of, the, of, of knowledge in that way as well, you know? So, um, so a blog is really interesting in that sense, just beware that you don't, you know, publish the blog before the article and you, you know, use any kind of copyrighted information, learn that the hard way. So be careful, but, but yeah, I'd say that's, that's number one tip. Excellent tip to end. I think that's brilliant. Like just publish and write diversified content. If you're writing a, as you said, a, an article or a submission or a paper, 500 word blog post, a great place to start. Maybe a YouTube explainer video. Maybe I had a very successful tweet stream the other day of tips and questions for people during Aviva. You know what I mean? It's communication metrics have changed. Academic communication metrics have changed. And what I find is they prompt conversations. Conversations yeah. lead to partnerships and conversations lead to then opportunities for stuff in the future. You know what I mean? Is the paths we're all on are different and varied. No, and, and I mean, maybe as a last tip, um, at least that was something that kind of a, an insecurity, I suppose, that I had to overcome is that, you know, you're, you're more interesting than you might think. I, you know, you think that, you know, I work in such a niche field, how could anyone possibly find this relevant other than myself and, you know, my small team of colleagues and supervisors. Um, but, you know, after it's even something as simple as, you know, being at a family dinner and talking about your work and that someone chimes in, hey, that is actually, wait, so does that relate to this and this? And you're like, yeah, actually it does. And then you're like, oh, wait, maybe there there is something worth spreading here. And I mean, there's people that have, um, personal brands and, and huge followings about subject matter that, you know, it used to, I think um, it used to be this idea that, you know, you could have a personal brand and share information beyond the research world was kind of limited to, I feel like very much the medical and health and kind of wellness space. And now that's, that's brought into all kinds of areas of technology and ecology. And um, yeah, it's just, it's exciting to see. And there's, there's, a, there's a ton of really great role models out there too. Excellent. Brilliant. Well, yeah, that's good enough. Place perfect to, ends, uh, like yeah, perfect <laughs> Sometimes these things write their own. So from all, internet all connected. Guests, yeah. All our guests are much better than us, it seems. Like, you know, oh, yeah. everyone gives us a nice natural end point. So then I go and, and screw it up. Yeah. That's, then that's, we ruin it. Fine. Yeah, that's fine. So from internet connected spinach to uh <laughs> to knowing what's in your truly in your backyard. And managing that, you know, through democratized data, as it were. All that to be said, Medina, it was wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for giving us the thoughts and ideas around your academic social brand, if you will, or your socially academic, something along that line. I'm sure, to, I'm I like sure the title will find itself <laughs> in there somewhere. Um, but from all of us to all of you, this has been Two Docs and a Dave this time instead of Two Daves and Two Docs and whatever. And uh, we'll leave you with that. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank